Well, it's uh, great to see all of you here. People start coming back, especially if you're a guest. I'm David. I'm like the closest thing we have to a pastor, I guess. So we're, we're glad you're here. Glad to be watching online. Uh, it's been, you know, through all this craziness that's going on, what's happened is with the online presence and now people coming back, we actually have more people worshiping with us than uh, we did before this. So God works and does things in the way that only he does, and we praise him and glorify him for it. In um, 1648, the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland published uh, something called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Catechism is a learning device, especially for children or new believers. It asks a series of questions, gives the answer in Scripture to support it. And uh, in the very first question, uh, ask this, what is the chief ends of man, or what we might say is the purpose of man? And the answer it gives is this, that the chief ends of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The chief purpose of man is to glorify God, and in doing that, to enjoy him forever. Uh, we, we're in a series uh, called The Night Before from John 13. The night before the crucifixion of Jesus, all four Gospels talk about it. John talks about it differently and in great length. Joe Connor in announcement time, or the welcome time, I should say, uh, shares some of the things with you that it goes on through chapter 16 of John, even in chapter 17, and in a deep fry, we're going to go into great detail about it. But for June and July, in, in the sermon series, we focused on John 13. And I began the series from verses 34 and 35, came to the back end of the chapter. And shared a message, and, and the passage I'm going to come back to at the end of the sermon series as well. But Jesus said, a new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another. And this is how all will know that you are my disciples, that you're my people, that you love one another, to, to love. And so we asked the question, what does love look like? That is kind of the overarching dominant theme of this whole series on the night before. What, is, what does love look like? Love looks a lot like Jesus, obviously. And one of the things that we've come to realize and, and, and we see uh, as, as he, we come through this 13 chapters, we see the importance of servanthood that, that Jesus shares with us. We're going to love people, we've got to serve them. Um, and, you know, we've seen Judas, and Jesus tried to reclaim Judas, and Judas leaves. And so now we're at that point where Judas is left. It's just Jesus and the 11, and we kind of take a, a different turn into this chapter and where he goes on from now in chapter 14, 15, and 16. And so what I want us to look at today is his glory. Jesus talking about his glory from John 13, verse 31 through 33. And this is what the passage says. Now, when he was gone, that is Judas, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me just as I told the Jews. So I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. And so, as we come to this passage today, in this message, here's what I want you to see. Love looks a lot like the glory of God. <laughs> what does love look like? Well, it's going to look a lot like the glory of God. And so to understand what that means, we have to talk first of all about the glory of God. For if the chief purpose of man is to glorify God, and it really is, then we need to look at what it means to glorify God. And to look at that concept of glory, we have to look at something else first, and that is the holiness of God. One of the things that I constantly remind you of, that the revelation of God, what he reveals to us, progresses. I mentioned this in a little bit greater detail a couple of weeks ago, that we see God in the Old and the New Testament progressively revealing himself to us. Uh, one of the things that I've shared, uh, and I shared a few weeks ago as well, but I share quite often, is that the Christian faith is built upon four pillars, four truths, we might say. Revelation, creation, incarnation, and, and the resurrection. 
God's revelation begins everything he reveals himself to us. But behind his revelation is the very nature and character of who God is. And to understand that, you need to understand something about God being holy. In fact, holiness is the cornerstone of what we believe. All we believe is based on the holiness of God. And so you need to get that right. Uh, back in, in the time of, of Christ in that age when they would build things, they, you know, cornerstones were important. I, I got to be honest, I cannot build stuff at all. Uh, some of you know that. And, and in fact, when Debbie gets these broad ideas, let's order this from Amazon or we'll get this from Wayfair. We used to go to Ikea and bring it back. I'm like, I ain't doing that. Because whenever I would put those things together, there'd be parts left. And I didn't know what to do with the parts. You know? <laughs> so I'm the guy that builds the furniture with things left over. And it takes me forever, so I, I just don't do that. But I do understand that when you build a building, you know, especially in antiquity, the cornerstone set everything else right. If the house was to be built right, you had to get the cornerstone right. In our understanding of God, to set it right, we need to understand holiness right. In fact, here's what I've shared with you. Most false teachings about God, most, most religions or cults are based on a lack of understanding of the holiness of God. Leviticus 19.2, God tells Moses, tell the people, be holy, for I am holy. He says, I'm a holy God. He describes himself as holy. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 5, when Moses encounters God at the burning bush, God says, take your sandals off, you're on holy ground. And then we're told in verse 6, Moses had to hide his face because he could not look upon the holiness of God. The quintessential, the, the ultimate passage dealing with the holiness of God in the Old Testament is in Isaiah chapter 6. It's the call experience of Isaiah. He has a vision. And in his vision, he's in the temple. And the angels are there, and they're singing back and forth to each other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is holy. The word holiness found in Isaiah, another place in the Old Testament, comes from a word to mean cut. To be cut is to be separated out. And it's to be cut and separated not from something but to himself. God is complete then. God is separate unto himself. He is in need of nothing. And he therefore is, is when he creates, he creates but not for, for his benefit. He creates because he needs nothing for our benefit. Um, sometimes when children ask their moms and dads, why did God make me? Why did he make everything? We want to help them out. And we'll say, well, God was lonely or God needed someone to love. Don't tell your children that. You're teaching, you're teaching your children heresy. <laughs> Let's be honest. God, didn't, God wasn't lonely. God didn't need something. God created us so that we could enjoy the benefits of God. God created us so that we would experience the blessings of God in relationship. Holy God is separate from his creation. We need to understand that. He is separate from his creation. He is not common. He is not profane. The word profane means secular. Sometimes we treat God that way. You know, the, the, you know, the bumper stickers you see sometimes and, and T-shirts and now on social media and the memes about God, you know, God is this, God is that. One of the things that drives me nuts is when people say it's a God thing. I have people in my last shirt. It's a God thing. I'm like, God, God doesn't do things. People do things. God does holy. See, God is holy. He's separate. From what is common. And that separation is even greater because of the sinfulness of man. So if God is holy and, and, and he's separate from us, how do we experience the holiness of God? Well, through his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the angels saying, the whole earth is full of his glory. And so glory is how that happens. In fact, glory, the word glory comes from a word that means heavy or burdened. And, and it's, it's, it's the idea that if you had a piece of gold and it had value, 10 pieces of gold would have more value. The more the gold, the greater the burden, the greater the weight, the greater the glory. And in time, glory 
came to have this idea of brightness or brilliance as well. And, and so what glory is, this is glory. Glory is the revealing or the appearance of the holiness of God. How do I encounter, how do I experience God's glory? I mean, God's holiness through his glory. That's how. So as God reveals himself to us, he reveals his glory to us. We experience the holiness of God. The ultimate revelation of God to us is Jesus. And the ultimate revelation of the glory of God is Jesus, which brings us then to John 13. You see, his apostles, these 11 guys that were left, being Jewish, understood all this. And so what he says next resonates with them. And what he says next is really profound. I think sometimes we kind of gloss over it and kind of and move on it quickly. But this is what he says in verse 31. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him now. Now, Judas has left, so th things have changed. The cross lies ahead, and there's nothing going to stop the cross but God. And it, 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 it's not because the Jews are going to do it, or the Romans are going to do it, or Judas is going to do it. God has set the cross in the path of Christ. Christ has surrendered to the path of God. Only God will change that. And so the term son of man is important. Jesus uses this to refer to himself. You see it a lot more in Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke, the synoptic gospels. Um, and, and it comes basically from Daniel 7.13 and some other passages as well. But in Daniel 7.13, he talks about the son of man. About 550 years since Daniel wrote this, or 600, somewhere in that range, depending on when Daniel actually wrote all that, or, or said all that. They hear these apostles, and at that time, they understood as a Jewish man, the son of man, that phrase referred to the Messiah. When Jesus uses the term son of man, they're thinking Messiah. And as I've shared with you in the messages in this series, the apostles were thinking that, that Jesus was going to reveal himself at the temple as the Messiah, the great army, and destroy the Romans and set up the kingdom. That's what all Jews thought the Messiah would do. They thought Jesus the Messiah. They thought this as well. So Jesus claiming to be the Messiah is, is, is what they're used to. But he says now the Son of Man is glorified. And here's the kicker, kicker and all that. To be glorified is something only God gets to do. <laughs> when Jesus says he is glorified, he's identifying as the Son of Man. And is glorifying. Now he's, he's saying I'm God. And not only that, he says God is glorified in me. Now just imagine, you know, that, that if I was to stand up here and say to you, that now at this moment, I am glorified and God is glorified in me. You would think, man, you, you're a heretic. It's not that I don't glorify God or praise God, but the idea that somehow I represent the glory that belongs to God, the holiness of God is found in me, because that's what he's saying, the holiness of God is found in me. Well, that's, that's heresy. But Jesus, it's true because he is God in the flesh. Not only is he glorified, but God is glorified and we have to understand then what that means. The word glory uh, means to be praised or honored. It's the word doxa. And, and, and so in the Old Testament, when they took that word heavy or burdened, they began to mean reveal. And they would translate it into Greeks. They would use this word doxa. And so I, we get a term doxology. If you've grown up in the church, you probably know what the doxology is. It's a song that says, praise God from whom all blessings flow. It, it, it's based on two Greek words, doxa and logos, a word about the praise or glory of God. He is, Jesus is the doxology, he's the praise of God. And what's fascinating is the way he phrases this, he's speaking of the past events. I am glorified, I've already been glorified. A little bit later in John, in the 17th chapter, after he does the teaching and before he goes, you know, they take him away, he has what is called the high priestly prayer where he prays. And he said, Father, the hour has come, the hour of the 
the cross has come. Glorify the Son as the Son has glorified you. God, I have glorified you in my life. I have pointed to you as the Holy One. Now glorify me. He's, the glory is yet to come. So on the one hand, you have Jesus saying, I am glorified, and another one that's yet to come. Sometimes you worry about the tenses. All of this is simply to point to one event. The fact that the glorification has already occurred and it's yet to come deals with the cross. The cross is the place where Christ is glorified. Because the cross was on its way and nothing could stop it, he was in essence already glorified. And yet because it has not yet come, he could say, Father, glorify your son. Which is somewhat ironic when you consider that the cross in that day and age was a place of shame and a place of suffering and humiliation. To, to be crucified was not only the most painful death, but it was a humiliating death. You laid up on that cross. You were naked. You were exposed. You were mocked. You were jeered. And yet we know today the cross to be something of, of, of a place of glory. Many of you may be wearing crosses as a symbol of your faith. Some people see a cross, they kneel before it to worship the Christ who was on the cross, not to worship the cross. You know, our Catholic friends make the sign of the cross. You know, all those things because we recognize there's something about the cross that's not shameful but glorious. What made the cross glorious was the death of Christ and subsequently the resurrection. And so Jesus, Jesus is saying on the cross, there, the glory, glory, God glorify me there. So the cross will then reveal both the glory of both the Father and the Son. On the cross, the holiness of God is revealed. Think about that. The holiness of God is revealed on the cross because Jesus, who was God in the flesh, came and died on that cross. Holy God dying on that cross reveals his holiness and that he brings us to him. He brings us into his presence. So we can experience then the beauty and the wonder of the glory of God, of the holiness of God. Jesus says to them, if or since, it kind of is a conditional, if, you know, if, if God is glorified in the Son. If I'm going to glorify God on the cross, then as well, God is going to glorify me, or he will glorify him himself. So he's saying God's going to glorify the Son as well. God's going to point to the Son. And think, think about what he's saying. Could you imagine some human being said that God's going to glorify me? Could, could you ever imagine? I, I could never imagine using the, the words, God glorify me, or praying, God, please glorify me. It, it is beyond my comprehension. And yet Jesus is saying, God is, is going to glorify me, and he's going to do it at once, immediately. I mean, people began to realize immediately that the cross was a place of glory, especially after the resurrection. So the holiness of Christ is revealed. It's just, this is a marvelous thing to comprehend, that here we see the absolute holiness of God revealed to us. That Jesus, on the cross, reveals not only the holiness of God, but the holiness of himself. So he says to them, children or little children that's not a he's not looking down on them but it's it's a term of affection he says something that he said before he said to them and he said to the jews in fact i tell you i said to the jews in chapter seven and chapter eight of john he says it to them he says i'm going to be with you a little while longer which means not then i'm going to be gone and then and he tells them and you will look for me because he's gone but where i'm going you can't go He's going to talk about this at greater length in John 14, 15, and 16. So here's my encouragement. If you come to the deep fry, I'll explain all that a whole lot more than I am now. If you walk out of here wondering, what does that mean? Well, in about two and a half weeks, you can come find out. Or you can just look up online and find out yourself. But you'll get confused because people online are notoriously wrong. 
Wikipedia. You know, go to Wikipedia and find out what Scripture says. You know. So he, he says, you know, you're going to look for me. You're not going to find me. Now, we might look at that and think, was well, he talking about the cross because he's going to go to the cross or his ascension? Always remember, when Jesus is talking to his guys, we live on this side of the cross. We look at it through the lives of the cross. They live on the other side of the cross. They don't, they don't know the cross is coming. And so they're hearing him say, you're going to look for me, and, and you're not going to be able to find me. In, in a few verses, in chapter 14, he says, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas says, we have no clue to where you're going. You keep talking about this, and we don't know. And then Jesus will say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But he's telling you, you're going to look for me. So, and then this is what he says after that. Now get this. He's talking about, you know, he's going to be glorified. Then he's going to leave. And the next words out of his mouth was what we preached about on the, on the very first message. So, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And this is how people will know you're my disciples. You love one another. He is saying, I'm going to be glorified. I'm going to go up on that cross. And the holiness of God is revealed. And then I'm not going to be with you anymore. Here's what you guys need to understand. In light of the fact that I am revealing the holiness of God and my holiness and all the glory on the cross. And then I'm leaving. If you're my disciples, you love one another. Because glory moves to love. So Jesus calls us to a new way to love. In this love, then, the glory of Jesus is revealed. You and I, as followers of Christ, if you are a follower of Christ... You help people see the holiness of God, the holiness of Christ, all that glory in your love. Your love for him and your love for one another. In that love, people will experience or come in contact with, I should say, the glory that is Christ. Glory matters. The holiness of God matters. He is a holy God. And from that we move to the purpose of man. They say the purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy his presence for all eternity. It's that relationship. And it's so important. That's how God created us. God created us to have that connection, that relationship with him. And then sin messes it up. You know, if you, if you go to the very beginning of the Bible before sin comes into the world in Genesis 1 and 2 and the first few verses of chapter 3. And then you go to the very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the last two chapters, after sin and Satan have all been defeated ultimately. You basically have the same thing. You have this park, this garden. And in this park, this garden, is the opportunity for us to enjoy a relationship with God. Everything between all of that is just all this sin in our life and Christ coming to take it away. So that we could have what the very beginning of God's revelation and the very end of God's revelation shares with us. Paradise. With him. Forever. Sin messes, messes that up so much. Because we want to take God's place. I, uh, I uh, had not quite started in the ministry yet. It was the summer of 1980. I went into ministry. My first church was in September of 1980. I have a hard time just accepting that that's that long ago. You know, in the early service, 1980 wasn't that long ago for them. For most of you, about half of you weren't even born yet, you know. Like, that's forever ago, man. You're an old man. And, and so I started, and uh, right before that, I, I was at my home church where Debbie and I were from, and uh, I was talking to the minister of music and youth. Back then, in the old days, 
uh, we had staff members that had two jobs sometimes. They were doing both music and youth. That's maybe hard for us to comprehend. I mean, in this service, there would be like Brian doing youth, which we could probably do that. But the hard part is our youth minister, Barry, if you know him, tried to picture him leading music, worship. I just can't, I can't, I can't picture Barry up here with the mic singing. Uh, I don't even want to try to picture Barry up here singing. I've heard him sing. And so that's, it's, just a, it's a different world, you know, different context back then. But he, was, he did both. And we were talking about something. He asked me a question. And I, and I don't know, because God is God. And I thought, well, that, that makes pretty good sense. God does things because he's God. And this is one of the great truths I learned early on. Someone taught it to me. I don't remember who. But God is God and we are not. And that's hard for us to accept because we want to be God. Because as I've shared with you many times, the very first sin in all the Bible, in Genesis 3, we want to be God. Satan, in the form of a serpent, came up to Eve to get to Adam and said, you can be like God. And they said, hey, that's a pretty good idea. I want to be God. We can't be God. It's not because he's the one. He is the holy one. And in our sin separates us so much from that holiness of God. But there was one man who actually was God, and that's Jesus. He was God in the flesh, the incarnation. We celebrated Christmas, who he is, God in the flesh, the resurrection. We celebrated Easter, what he did. He died in his resurrection. Now, that doesn't mean that he wasn't also man. He was fully man. He was tempted in every way that we were tempted. He had no advantage over us in his humanity. But he was God in the flesh. This is what we need, then, to understand. Hebrews 1.3 tells us this. He is the radiance, that is Jesus, of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. The glory of God, the holiness of God, Jesus is the radiance. He is the appearance of that holiness. And as far as the nature of God, he is exactly the same in his nature. He is God. And so what Jesus reminds us as we are his followers is this. And it's important. Our purpose is to glorify God. To glorify God, to honor God, the same thing. Paul writes to the church of Corinth in chapter 10, verse uh, 31, I think, of, his, of, the, of the first Corinthians. He says, whatever you do, whatever you eat or you drink, do for the glory of God. So how do we glorify God? As a follower of Christ, there's two primary ways. It's to worship and witness. We worship our Lord. To worship in the New Testament word means to bow down before. Proskuneo means to put your nose to the ground in front of the one you honor. It is to worship. Worship in, in the New Testament, the Old Testament, is primarily understood to be corporate. We come together. We talk about private worship, and I get that. It's devotion. It's there. But if you read the scriptures carefully, the primary emphasis on worship is to come together. It's what we do. The word church, ecclesia, the called out ones, to come together. Synagogue, the assembly, to come together. We come together to worship. And our worship has several parts. All of it has to do with the revelation of God as God reveals himself to us. So when we worship together, we proclaim God's revelation. We proclaim the word of God, primarily Jesus. Paul reminds us of, of the importance of proclaiming. It's the, it is the foolishness. It is the fu- foolishness of the cross, of the message that brings salvation. And, and so he reminds us the importance of proclaiming that and telling people about Jesus. For the word of God, is, it, is, it is the power of salvation to those who believe. The gospel is power to change lives. The holy message of Christ, we proclaim it. And what else do we do? Well, we sing. You know, and singing is a part of it. In, in Isaiah, 
uh, chapter uh, 6, what do they do? The angels shouted. They sang back and forth. And the idea is that they just kept singing on and on and on and on. And that's part of who we are. Now, some sing better than others. I'm a, I'm a lousy singer, obviously. But, but we still sing and we proclaim. And so, uh, you know, a few weeks ago when uh, the governor you know, said we could go back to worship, which, you know, is convenient because we were coming back anyways with or without her on that one. But uh, one of the things she says, though, is when you worship gathered, you can't sing, you can't chant. I don't do a lot of chanting, but we do sing. And, and so you can't sing. And so uh, and other, other states have said the same thing. And so we ignore that because we can't help but sing because that's how we praise God. And the chief ends of man is to praise God. And we have to do it his way. We always do it his way because we're here to glorify God. We worship God. We bear witness through proclamation, through singing, and through commitment. At the end of uh, Isaiah's call experience in verse 8 of Isaiah 6, the Lord has, the angel said, who would go for me? And, and Isaiah said, here am I, send me. We commit, so we have a time of commitment always at the end of our service in a few moments, a time of, to allow you to respond because that's how we worship. The other way that we honor and praise God is through our witness. Now, our witness is to proclaim that we're followers. Primarily, is to be able to publicly say, and by the word and by deed, I'm a follower of Jesus. We don't hide it. doesn't mean we go into a restaurant. When I go into a restaurant after uh, the last service, you know, I go into a restaurant and sit down for the last time for a while <laughs> here. And uh, I'm not going to say, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm not going to do that. But, my, but if someone says, hey, aren't you the pastor? Aren't you a follower of Christ? I say, yeah. I mean, I, I bear witness. But we also bear witness in the way that we tell people about Jesus. We have to tell people they need to come to Christ because they can't honor God if they don't come to Jesus. You may not realize this, but here's the thing. The initial and primary way that we glorify God is to come to faith in Jesus. That's the initial way and the primary way. If you don't come to faith in Jesus, you're going to have a very difficult time honoring God. You just can't really do it. So that is the way that we honor God. So that is why, as a church, that we stress so much coming to a relationship with Jesus. That's why we talk about getting people to Jesus as fast as we can. Because people need to come in contact with Christ. And we need to trust that Christ will do the work from that point forward to get them in that saving relationship because they cannot honor God. And we are created by God to honor him. And if we don't honor him, it's because of that distance that sin has separated from us. And we cannot, we cannot live with him forever if we cannot glorify and honor him. So then here's the thing. As individuals and as a church, everything we do should glorify God. Everything in your life should glorify God. If you're going to do something, you might need to figure out, does it glorify God or not? You know, ask yourself that question. Now, that obviously, it's not every silly thing. I mean, if, if you go and, and, and you go to a restaurant and, you know, you're going to get barbecue and say, do I get brisket or pulled pork, which will honor God? You know, you don't need to do that. It's the brisket, but you don't need to honor that. <laughs> if you ask what Jesus would do, he's not going to get the pork. He's Jewish. He's going to go with the beef. <laughs> That's why Texans have beef and other places have pork because we're just a little closer to Jesus than the rest <laughs> of the country. Sharing it. But obviously in your life, you know, you need to know, what am I going to do? What am I about to do? Will that bring glory to God? And as a church, we ask this. I, I want you to understand this. And I want you to have confidence in this as your pastor and your staff. Whether we, we, we make mistakes, and I get this, and some of you kindly point them out to us on a regular basis. And we're far from perfect, as, as, as obviously you all know. But everything we do, our number one goal is to glorify God. 
every decision you make. Every decision you make. Our goal is to glorify God and to bring people in contact with Jesus Christ. Every decision. Whether we do it well or not is open for debate. But whether or not that's our primary goal is not. Because that's what God calls us to do. To glorify him. To honor him. To help people come into a saving relationship with Christ. This is our purpose. What is the purpose of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So, that's what I said at the very beginning of the message. Love looks a lot like the glory of God. Love looks a lot like the glory and the holiness of God. When Jesus says, go and love people, it's with the understanding that we're going to take that glory of Christ and that message, and we're going to live by that glory, and we're going to share that glory. So the question you have to ask is in your life, do you bring glory to God? First and foremost, you have to have a saving relationship with Christ or you simply can't. And if you've never trusted Christ to be your Savior, we invite you to do that in a moment. We're going to have that time of commitment, and some of us will be standing here, and you can come and talk to us about giving your life to Jesus. You can give your life to Jesus right now, where you're sitting, just trusting to be your Savior. Talk to one of us. If you're online, they'll have a, a phone number that you can text, respond to, and someone will call you back and talk to you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know, do you glorify God in your worship? I mean, are you honoring God when you worship, in publicly and privately? What about your witness and the way you live your life every day? Is that a testimony to the glory of Christ that he is holy in everything you say, everything you do, and how you contact people? And in the way you serve, because we said love looks a lot like serving. We've said that for numerous weeks now. When you serve, are you serving to glorify self, to make you feel good about you? Or are you serving to glorify God? Now, I don't know what you need to do today. But I know this, when you walk out of this place, you need to walk out with a life that your goal is to bring glory to God. And you can only do that through faith in Christ. And so our invitation for you today is quite simply to trust Jesus and spend your life in glory and praise of God. Father, thank you so much for all that we have that you give to us. And what most importantly you give to us, even though we're sinners, is Christ Jesus who is Lord who on that cross demonstrated the full glory of God, the holiness of God revealed in a way that is unimaginable in any other context, on the cross of Christ. And because of that cross and the resurrection that follows, we can have eternal life with you. We can enjoy your glory forever. And it is my prayer that we would all do that, that we would praise you and honor you and glorify you. In Christ's name, amen. Would you stand? We'll be here to greet you.